On this episode of AvTalk, the A330neo sets off on a five-continent adventure, aviation finds its way into the World Cup, and we find out we're overqualified for a seemingly important aviation job in the UK. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here once again with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello again. We are back for another episode and as always, Jason has gone somewhere over the past two weeks and is back to give us a, I think we, the standard is five second brief on where you've been and what you've done. So uh, Jason, take it away. Well, I went down to Atlanta to visit Delta. Can't fit this in five seconds, but I visited their OCC, which is their operations and customer center, I believe. And the real part of the uh, trip was to go check out their first 777 with the new Delta One suites and their premium economy and their glorious still nine abreast economy seats. And the whole thing was very nice. That was the big news to come out of the official purpose of your trip was that, you know, the nine abreast is still nine abreast. But you also had an opportunity to talk with some of the meteorologists on, yes. in, in the OCC. Remember that whole hurricane thing? I don't think I'll ever forget it. Yeah. So it turns out Delta actually has 26 meteorologists on staff, which is approximately 26 more than many or most airlines in the world have in-house. And we were just, you know, talking about that from, uh, I guess it's almost a year ago at this point, how they were able to predict the storm since they have, since Puerto Rico is in fact a part of the United States, they have Nexrad radar there and they could get really high resolution weather radar down there. So they were accurately able to predict when they would be able to get in what the exact winds were, what the bands of the storm were, and they were very confident that they'd be able to get in, do their thing and get out. And well, the rest is history is a little line on a map. <laughs> Was this something that you brought up to them or were they like, hey, it's the hurricane guy? I had brought it up. When we got to the tour of the OCC with the meteorologist, I went, hey, let's talk about that uh, the hurricane. You know the one. And they were like, yeah, we do. I would not be surprised if, if there's, you know, like a picture printed out or something like that of the forecast or, or something like that. I would be, you know, if I was a meteorologist in that particular situation, I would want a, some sort of commemoration of that. I don't know. Something tells me they all just kind of felt like it was their job that day. Yeah, that it was fair enough. No big deal. I mean, that, that was basically the, the attitude of the, the pilots and the flight attendants and, and all the crew when, when they were kind of interviewed about it. So I, I guess that makes sense that the meteorologists would, would feel the exact same way. Right. But the whole day was cool. Went down and back up to Atlanta in one day, flew in and out of LaGuardia without any delays, which is amazing. I hadn't flown out of LaGuardia in over a year for many obvious reasons. So that was a nice surprise. That I'm very surprised that there was no delay whatsoever. Yeah. Flew down on a four-month-old Airbus A321 that was actually produced down in the Mobile factory, my first time on one of those. And back up on a 20 something year old ex Northwest A320, but Delta does such a good job keeping them up, you really can't even tell the difference on the inside. And on the way down, we actually had a, a go around on the way into Atlanta, which was kind of fun. Oh, nice. Did you get any indication? You know, sometimes, you know, people will write in, you know, we, we had a go around and I have no idea what happened. And then sometimes, you know, the pilot said, so did the pilots get on and, and give anybody any information because I'm sure that somebody in the cabin was curious. 
Oh, yeah. So I was just staring out the window as I normally do and heard the uh, engine spool up and we started to go up. And I'm like, huh, well, that's different. So probably about two minutes later after the gear went up and they did all the important stuff up front, they got on the PA and said, yeah, there was a an aircraft on the runway in front of us that didn't get out of the way in time. So we have to go back around and we'll be back on the ground in maybe four to five minutes. So they, they did very calmly tell us, hey, this is what happened. Nobody panicked or anything. They just all kind of looked around at each other with that puzzled look of like, the hell's happening? I, th- I thought we were supposed to land. Right. Now, I don't want to go back to LaGuardia. It's too soon. <laughs> that, that, that's, you know, everyone's saying that. We did check it out and it was Spirit's fault. You can blame blame Spirit on that. But, you know, when the go around's always the good choice. So let's talk about a little bit of a rough patch for PSA Airlines. I don't think it's week. a patch anymore. It's just rough. It's not a rough patch. It's just rough. Uh, their computer systems went down. And so they were basically canceling, I mean, a good number of flights. Jason, you, you followed this a little bit more closely than I. So maybe you can dig into the particulars. Yeah. So I think this started a week ago now that the last I heard, it may have been some crew scheduling software at PSA, which is exclusively in American Airlines Eagle Carrier. A, a wholly that, owned subsidiary. Wholly owned subsidiary. They only fly for American. And some critical piece of software had gone down and it stayed down and it would not come back up. And it had been down for a a good week that they just could not get this operation going. And there were times where I plugged in their call sign, which is like JIA or something along those lines. And there were just none, no aircraft at all flying for PSA for days. They finally got the system up and running. I don't know, I guess some Someone took a hammer and hit some servers, but they're finally up and running, but they're still canceling like 50, 60% of their flights to get their operation back because aircraft aren't where they need to be. Flight crews aren't where they need to be. And it's a dramatic process to get this up and running, but super disappointing that an airline as big as PSA, they're not a small regional airline. They have 130 something aircraft, I believe, and they're owned wholly by Americans. So they're not some small airline with no corporate backing. This is really on American at the end of the day. Many, many, many tens of thousands of customers impacted, hundreds and hundreds of flights canceled and severely delayed, but they're finally getting up and running again. Yeah, I think it was today, it was like 70 to 80% of their flights, and then they're trying to get back to normal tomorrow. So I guess we'll see how long it actually takes them to get fully back to normal. Yeah. And it wasn't a good look at the end of the day from America. There was no uh, waiver issued. So if you were on PSA, you couldn't really be automatically or voluntarily rebooked off of PSA. The whole thing was kind of handled quite sloppily and not acknowledged to a couple days in, I believe. But it just goes to show how dependent airlines are on their computers and their servers. And if one piece of tech goes down, it took them days to fix it. Yeah. So... It's, I mean, hopefully on the mend and, and we'll keep on it, see if it, if anything else happens, but hopefully we're in clear sailing now. Let's talk about some good news then. Do we have any? We do. Cathay took delivery of their first A350-1000 this week. Oh. It's a long plane. Long plane is long. Long I've plane is it. long. It's very yes, long. It is. So they took delivery of their first of, I, I think it was a 26 and that'll go into service soon. But they're the second operator now after Qatar Airways. 
And those are the only two airlines expected to take delivery of any in 2018. Yes. Do you know who the next is? I don't. Okay, we'll look that up. There aren't that many customers yeah, for it's, it. It's, so. uh, it's it's one of those, you know, not so well-loved planes. Somebody's going to take it. Yeah. I don't know who. We'll see. But they took delivery of their first, and I think they're going to take another one soon. And that A350-1000 will enter service. It's the, the longer version of the A350-900 and easily distinguishable among Cathay Pacific's fleet because the titling on the fuselage fits between the two doors on the A350-1000 and it does not on the A350-900. I think Will Horton pointed that one out. So thank you to him for making the spotter's job just a little bit easier. Other Airbus news, the A330neo is venturing off to five continents and, and 15 cities and going to all sorts of route proving. And But they started with a party that, that both of us missed out. I know this is a bit of a sore subject, but the launch customer for the A330neo is TAP, the Portuguese airline, which you have a, a historically, unambiguously awful relationship with. Don't know who you're talking about. Never heard of them. Okay. We've reached that stage of the relationship where you refuse to acknowledge that they exist. I don't even know who you're talking about. All right. So so the launch customer of the A330neo, so the A330-900, the A330-800, well, will probably go the way of the A350-800 and, and never be built. But the A350-900 has quite a few customers. And so there is part of certification for the, well, second half of the year, which we're already into, but are almost into. The certification process includes route proving, and so they're taking it all over the place, including uh, here in Chicago and Atlanta, where Jason just was. So in a couple of weeks, we will have reporting from inside the A330neo. We'll get to check it out and, and see what it's like and then see what's different between you know the A330 and the A330neo besides the obvious, which is the new engine option. Now, usually when they bring these things to specific airports, they have a reason in mind, which is marketing. So they brought the A350 to Chicago back a, a couple of years ago because United was a customer at the yeah, time. Yeah, that didn't and we, work. Still, we have those keychains <laughs> that I know you have as well that say United A350. Those are souvenirs now. Yeah, uh, collector's items. pieces, yeah. Why are they bringing it to Chicago? And I know why they're bringing it to Atlanta because Delta is one of the few customers, but I wonder why they're bringing it to Chicago. I mean, I honestly don't know. The obvious answer is United or American. And American doesn't seem likely to buy any considering they're they're doubling, I mean, near literally doubling down on seven recently. I haven't heard anything about United, but then I haven't really been keeping my ear that close to the ground about what United's new wide body, you know, plans are. Strange. I mean, unless they're they're trying to convince well, I don't even know who else you would consider bringing it to Chicago for. I don't know. Maybe your mayor needs a new aircraft. Maybe. I don't think that's going to be happening. No. So that'll be interesting and, and we'll get to be on board for a little bit and get some answers about what the aircraft is like and and wander around and and get some more information about the the NEO program. So that'll be interesting in a couple of weeks, and we'll have that on in a, a future episode. Jason and I, meanwhile, are jointly applying for a position in the United Kingdom. We're overqualified, though. We are overqualified. So the closing date is June 26th, so we better apply shortly. 
Oh, man, I got to get my resume ready. Yeah. So Jason and I are both applying to be the head of airspace strategy slash head of aviation EU exit negotiations for the, the British government. It's a permanent position. It's a policy strategy and other type of role, and it includes flexible working. And the only reason that we are qualified is because this role requires no aviation experience. Now, here's a bit of the description. Are you a self-starter and strategic thinker who is committed to collaborative working? Are you motivated by policy development and delivering results? Well, good news. You don't have to know crap about the aviation industry to somehow negotiate the UK's exit from the EU. What? Prior knowledge of airspace and the aviation sector is an advantage but not necessary. Yes, for the head of airspace strategy, I would hope they know what airspace means. Maybe that's why this job pays so little, only 62,000 yeah, pounds. It seems to me that this is something that wasn't necessarily thought through all the way. Like a lot of all of, of Brexit is not really thought through. This job posting is also horrendously not thought through. Yeah, I'd, I mean, some of these role responsibilities are, I mean, pretty substantial. Developing policy for ensuring the delivery of airspace changes, making the case for policy reform and working with CA, which is a civil aviation administration, I think, in the UK, and NATS, which is the uh, air navigation service provider, so the you know air traffic control, to develop the options. Airspace modernization requirements for any new runways. I mean, they're very technical. Here's another quote. You will also have extensive experience of dealing with senior stakeholders such as ministers and senior officials and preferably industry representatives and other stakeholders. How the hell are you supposed to do that if you don't have any knowledge of the aviation sector? That's insane. I don't understand this job posting. Much as I don't understand Brexit in general, I don't understand this job posting. That being said, I think we should apply. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm hitting the green button right now. Yeah. See what happens. Well, unfortunately, I'm not a UK national. If you are a UK national and know nothing about the aviation sector, hit the show notes and we'll send you the link to yeah, this application. And, and I mean, do we get some sort of like finder's fee? That would be okay. I don't know. Yeah, Can they afford not. it? <laughs> not on this salary. They're, they're paying so little for this job. Maybe they can have some left over for us. To be fair though, there's a salary window. It goes from 62,000 pounds up to 70,000 pounds. So there's room for negotiation, it seems. I don't know. I hope the person has experience in negotiation because they might not have it in aerospace. I mean, when I see these jobs, I, I feel like they, they have somebody in mind and they're just writing it around that person or something. I mean, just to, to give themselves cover, I, I don't even know. But it's just crazy to me that you would have what appears to and, – and I could be wrong. This could be just a job posting that – sounds very official and is just they're asking someone to to push paper or something like Would that. Would it surprise you if a government official didn't actually know the topic? Well, I mean, there there's that. What's the head of the Department of Energy's uh, quote from back when that he didn't actually know what they did and once he learned what they did, he was so thrilled to actually take that job, so not shocking. That's fair. So why should ignorance be confined to the United States? But if you're looking for a, a flexible working full-time job that requires 37 hours a week and it deals with aviation and you're a UK national, please by all means apply uh, and let us know what you hear back. <laughs> I'd love to sit in on those interviews. Oh, I mean, you and me both. Let's go back to Chicago and talk about something that happened on Tuesday and they, an Atlas Air uh, 747 
declared an emergency on final, saying they had a fire indication in the cargo hold. It's a, so a car, 747 cargo aircraft. And I only want to talk about this because no, nothing happened. Uh, there was no fire. There was no fire. There was no fire. They landed, exited the runway. But the pilots exited the aircraft via the escape slide. And so we'll post a photo in the show notes because it's one of those things that conceptually you realize that the 747 is a very tall airplane. But until you kind of see the escape slide from the upper deck going down to the ground, it's not something that you think about. Like, oh, that's that's a long way down. It's a long way to the ground. Yeah. And someone grabbed a, a photo of the the aircraft on the on the taxiway last night with the escape slide, you know, still inflated. And I can only imagine, you know, in an evacuation situation, going down one of those. And I'm reading the book by the captain of Qantas thirty two right now, QF thirty two right now. And I've gotten to the point in the book where, and, and for those who, who aren't familiar with, with QF32, we'll put a link to the Wikipedia article, is actually, in my mind, riveting. And, and I don't say that often about Wikipedia articles, but I mean, the factual information about the event is just fascinating to me. The very, very short synopsis is a Qantas A380 flying from Singapore to Sydney experienced an uncontained engine failure shortly after takeoff in Singapore in the number two engine, so the inside left engine, which severed basically everything that would help control the plane in the left wing, a lot of other stuff, you know, ailerons aren't working, spoilers aren't working, fuel pumps aren't working, the oral warnings are going off, lights and buzz, I mean, for, you know, for two hours until they get the plane on the ground, then they land and, and there's a whole another you know, set of issues, but everyone made it onto the ground safely. And so I've reached the point in the book where he's describing what's happening after they land and the pilots are deciding whether or not to evacuate the aircraft. Um, and they're talking about if we evacuate, people are going to get injured because you're talking about, you know, a, a double deck aircraft going down those slides and the slides are made to bounce you into a running position when you come to the bottom. Jason, you've done evacuation slides before, right? I have. Okay. So, I mean, you've experienced this. I mean, maybe you can talk about your experience a little bit too. Yeah. So, I mean, nothing like off the top deck of a 7-4, which is something like 25 feet off the ground. It's, it's more than that. We'll have to look up the exact. It's high up there, 25, maybe 27 feet, depending on the type of uh, aircraft. But I did one on a... a TAM F-100 trainer down in uh, Brazil, and it, it's it's fast. You basically, you jump onto the side, you, there's very little friction, you slide down, and it really does just kind of dump you off at the end to the point where they have carpet and padding all around the bottom because they know it bounces you up and you have to kind of, you don't just get to the bottom like a slide and playground and just kind of get up and walk away. No, it bounces you off and makes and kind of encourages you to get away from the aircraft. Yeah. So, I mean, they were talking a lot about, um, you know, what happens if we use the slides? There's, you know, a large pool of jet fuel because there's fuel pouring out of the wings, you know, so what do we do? And and so they eventually decided, you know, we're, we're not going to evacuate via the slides. We'll, we'll wait for stairs because they felt that it would be much more dangerous to evacuate via the slides than it would be to wait till the situation outside the aircraft was contained. But it was a fascinating discussion about, he's talking about, you know, statistics and 
and probability and things like that about how many people are going to get injured versus, you know, everyone's safe inside the plane at the moment. Yeah. Surprising to me that they would have popped that slide from the upper deck without even, I guess, going downstairs to look at what's what, but I'm sure they did what they needed to do. Yeah. I mean, they pulled off (laughs) the convenient thing is as far as, you know, where they exited the runways, they landed on 10th center and the exit into the cargo area off of 10th center is about a hundred yards from the fire station. So, so it was, it was quite convenient. The firefighters were on scene very quickly. So they, I mean, off the slides and, and everybody was safe. So it was, uh, and, and no fire was found. So that's the, that's the good thing. Before we take a break, should we talk about one more little bit of trivia that happened this week, which is the first US produced A321neo went to Hawaiian. And the best part of all of the Hawaiian Air Airbus stories is it was delivered directly to the heart of Boeing and Payne Field. Yeah. <laughs> Just like their A330s. I, I love, love these that. stories. Yeah. It's just so, one of those one of those funny, you know, only in aviation things. But yeah, so so interestingly, because you, you mentioned the A321 earlier, the mobile A321. So the first US produced, so they build all the components in Europe. They put them on barges and they ship them over to Mobile, Alabama, where they put them all together. And then they deliver the aircraft from there. And so the first A321neo went to Hawaiian and then Hawaiian takes delivery of their aircraft and immediately sends them to ATS at Payne Field for further modification. Right. So either seats or entertainment systems, not in the case of Hawaiian, but JetBlue does the same where they'll they'll often take an aircraft brand new from Hamburg or Mobile and they'll send it straight to Payne Field. Yeah. What's the other middle of nowhere airport in Florida that JetBlue, is it Lakeland or or something like that? It's uh, one of those two in the the Orlando area. Yeah. Yeah. Delta's been sending a lot of their new aircraft to Kansas City as well for Wi-Fi installation. Air Canada delivers all of their 787s directly to Kansas City. And every time they deliver a new one, somebody writes us like, why is there an Air Canada going to Kansas City? Barbecue. That's a good enough reason right there. Yeah. Are there any Boeing aircraft that get delivered straight to Toulouse? Probably not. Probably not. No. I can't think of a single one. And on that note, because I can't think of any reason that that would happen. Can you? Nope. No. Okay. Funsies. Just to rub it in, I guess. I mean, it could potentially stop. A Boeing delivered aircraft could stop in Toulouse on the way to somewhere else to gas and go, but that seems unnecessary. Yeah. That seems very unnecessary. All right. Let's take a quick break. And we'll come back and we'll talk about the World Cup. We'll talk about London again, but for a different reason. And we will talk about some unmanned aircraft. So stay with us and we'll be back after a short break. And we are back and ready for the World Cup. Jason, have you been following the World Cup at all? Pretty much every match, except when I was down in uh, Atlanta. All right, then. I mean, I can't say that I'm a huge soccer and or football fan for for anyone listening outside the United States, but I do enjoy the World Cup. I really do enjoy the World Cup. I think it's a, a fun thing, and it's always a fun thing when I can enjoy something but also have aviation dovetail into it. And all of the World Cup, you know, the team flights have been... You know, fun and interesting to follow, except the the Saudi team that was traveling from St. Petersburg to Rasavandan a couple of days ago experienced an engine issue, and so you, there were pictures of 
flames coming out the engine. But everybody landed safely, and their match, it was today. I missed it. It was today. Uh, did they win? I don't think they did. Ah, uh, nuts. I should double check that, though. All right. So I was definitely watching. Let's see. No, they lost one nothing to uh, Uruguay. To Uruguay, yeah. So Yeah, I was watching that game at uh, work in the corner of my screen today and had my headphones in and I heard the the commentators during the middle of the game mention uh, bird strike. I go, my, huh? What? Oh, yeah, they're talking <laughs> about the Saudi flight. So I guess the airline reported that it was a bird strike, but there's been some questioning of the validity of that information. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of surprised it was a bird strike. Seeing the video, you usually see kind of like the compressor stall where the, the flames pulse rather than be a steady flame right. like we saw shooting out the back of that video. So, I mean, I wasn't thinking bird strike at first, but what the hell do I know? <laughs> I ask myself that every day. Yeah. As always, like we say, we'll let the Russian investigators sort the crap out and we'll get back to you if and when they ever update us. Yeah. So we'll wait for that one. Speaking of investigations, the final report into BA-2276 came out today, which was the British Airways 777 in Las Vegas that experienced an uncontained engine failure and a very serious fire and was eventually repaired and put back into service. Yeah, I didn't think that when it was when Did it was not happening. think that no. was going to happen. No. So the final report basically confirmed all of the preliminary reports and, and things like that, that it was a uh, fatigue crack in the high pressure compressor stage eight disc is what caused the engine failure and subsequent fire. So that's the final report that we will put into show notes. If that is interesting reading to you and you feel like uh, reading the entire report, it's some good reading if that's your thing. The aircraft GVIIO is still in service or is back in service. It was out of service for a while. It was repaired by Boeing's AOG team and then flown to Victorville for some painting. And then by the time that it was back in the UK, you couldn't even tell anything had happened. While we're in London, thank you for the assist there, I guess. I added all I could to that story. Yes. While we're in London shall we say, that Emirates now operates 10 daily services to London. And can we talk about how- Nine of them are A380s. Yeah. And one of them is a 777-300ER. Which is big. So, I mean, there's a couple people that are being flown between Dubai and London every day. So they've got, what, a few. six to London Heathrow, three to Gatwick, and one to Southend, is it now? Stansted. Stansted, not not South End. Not South End. I don't think you can land triple seven three hundred ER at. I mean, maybe you can. I don't know. I mean, I didn't know you could land a triple seven three hundred ER uh, at a lot of places. Emirates does. That's that's a fair point. That's a very fair point. It's just an incredible number of seats. I mean, it, it amazes me that you can operate that many seats between two cities. You said, but I mean, I get they're doing it. Yeah, I ran the numbers for you at some point. I don't remember That's what they true. are offhand, but it's a lot. It is a lot. And I'm trying to, to pull up the numbers right now as best I can. And that is on top of Etihad's three flights a day. 4,885 seats on Emirates aircraft between Dubai and London. And that's on top of three Etihad A380s daily, which have 
I don't know how many seats on their own, but that's a lot of seats between the the greater Dubai area and London. Yeah. So if you're looking for a flight between Dubai and London, you you can probably find a seat. Yeah. Well, Etihad actually adds another 1,500 seats per day with their A380s. So that's, that's ridiculous. That's a lot of plane. I wonder how many of those people are actually going to Dubai and not just connecting. I do not know. We could find that out, maybe. Can we? I don't know. I'll huh. leave that up to you. That'll be your homework for this episode. Just even thinking about that makes us both <laughs> overqualified for that UK job. Oh, nuts. Somebody's got to apply for that. I, I really hope somebody applies for that. Let's talk about a few things to close out the show. One is the first flight alone in the national airspace system of NASA's Ikana UAV. So they've been working on this for a couple years now, the sense and avoid technology that's that's on the UAV to have it safely navigate the national airspace system. So we're, we're talking about not flying above commercial aircraft, but flying within the space that commercial aircraft also inhabit. And last week was the first flight alone. So they've, all the flights before have either had a, a well, have had a chase plane. So if something's going to go wrong, the chase pilot and people in the chase plane can say, okay, something bad is about to happen. We need to change direction or, or stop what we're doing. This was the first flight where it flew by itself. So I think it's a pretty interesting step in the direction of you know integrating these things into, into the airspace. So all these Predator drones and, and all the drones that have operated for a long period of time over a number of years in active war zones and just getting to and from the war zones. How have they gotten to and from the whole time? Have they not been integrated into the air system? Have they actually had a chase plane along all of them? I'm a little unclear on that. It's my understanding that, I mean, if we're talking about ones that are on on mission, and this is just as I understand it, I could be wrong. If I'm wrong or if I'm partially wrong, let us know at podcast.fr24.com because I would like to get this one right. And we'll go back and put something in the show notes if we can find a specific policy. But it's my understanding that, that when we're talking about you know military mission aircraft, they're being transported to the theater that they're operating in and then operating there, or they're operating above the national... So if we're talking about like Global Hawks and things like that, yeah. those are operating above the national airspace system. That is my understanding of it. As always, we will have to do some more research. I feel like we come up with as many questions as we're, when we're recording the podcast as we do answers, which is, I mean, probably not a bad thing. I do not have the answers you look. And you never do, Jason. But that's okay. We'll live. Shall we close out the show with some undecided news or some ambiguous news? Okay. So Southwest Flight 1380, which suffered the engine failure a few months ago, was repaired enough to ferry to Painfield and was then repaired enough to ferry to Victorville. And it's been painted. And the patch that was applied to the fuselage has been painted in Southwest colors. <laughs> it looks pretty interesting. It's just like, it looks like a just a piece of metal that they bolted onto it. I mean, in, in, in essence, that's, I mean, that's what, what happened. Yeah. So we reached out to Southwest and they said that the aircraft is currently being stored in Victorville and that no decision has been taken on its fate. So it, to me, that says we're waiting for the insurance company to tell us what to do. Which could take a long time. And we've talked about this before. I mean, as far as you know, insurance and investigations and things like that, the American 767 that experienced the engine failure 
at O'Hare is the one still that parked there. The wing, the one that had the melted wing. Yeah. It's still parked. It's all wrapped up. It's all shrink wrapped. And it's just sitting there with the, the wing kind of nearby. And I mean, waiting for, you know, all of the insurance and, and legal proceedings and investigations to kind of conclude so that they can decide, I mean, how to get rid of it. I mean, that one's not a question of whether they get rid of it or not. It's just how do they get rid of it? So it'll be interesting to see what happens with, with this particular 737. I mean, these insurance proceedings take a while. Fort Lauderdale had their almost back-to-back FedEx MD-11 and, and Dynamic 767 incidents basically parked them in front of the highway entrance to the airport. So for a good year, you saw just pretty much an exploded MD-11 and an exploded 767 just sitting in front of the highway entrance to the airport. And they were there for like a solid year. Welcome so to Fort Lauderdale. takes a long time. And this aircraft, the 73700, is 18 years old. So maybe it's just time to put it into forced retirement. It's just interesting to me why they would repair it and paint it. Yeah. And then park it. I mean, Southwest's fleet isn't so small that they really need to bring it back into service. So that's what's kind of confusing me. I mean, you you wouldn't repair it and paint it if you weren't planning on bringing it back into service. And then they parked it. I don't know. There's always an insurance answer for everything. (laughs) Yes, that's true, I, I guess. I mean, if you can't figure it out, blame an insurance company. Exactly. All right. I'll take that one. Yeah. 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 I I will take that one. Well, I think we will leave it there for this week. I'm going to go back and go and see what all homework we've given ourselves because it seems like we've given ourselves a lot of homework this week. So we'll be back in a couple weeks with some more answers and we'll probably raise some more questions and then we'll just do the whole thing over again. Plenty of questions. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. As always, drop us a note at podcast at fr24.com. If you've got more questions you'd like answered, or uh, if you've got some comments about anything we've said today, if you like the show, or if you don't like the show and you want to tell us that too, that's fine. Go on iTunes, if that's how you find the podcast, and leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people find the podcast so that we can keep doing what we're doing, and we really enjoy that. We'll be back in a couple weeks with some cool stuff. The A330neo is coming up, and we'll have some more stuff as we get into the summer plane spotting season. And so we'll get into that later in the next show and the following show after that. So as always, I am Ian Petchnik here with Jason Rabinowitz and thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.